Well, like I said, I've got this nice big book up here, and uh, it's one of my favorite books because I use this every week. If not this, I use it online, but I thought, you know, the visual is good. It's the Oxford English Dictionary. I don't know how much you go to a dictionary, but I, in my neck of the woods, in my profession, I'm constantly looking up definitions. So this series is called Foretold. So let me read to you the definition of foretell. That's the present tense of foretold, the past tense. Foretell, it says this. It's a verb. It says to tell of an event before it takes place. Predict, prophesy, foreshadow, presage, be the precursor of. As an intransitive verb, it's to speak of beforehand, prophesy of. It's to inform or enjoin a person beforehand, to state in advance, to tell something beforehand. Imagine if you could do that. If you or I could actually tell of something before it actually happens, if we could prophesy about something before it even takes place. I mean, not just sort of vaguely, but specifically, exactly. Imagine if we could say something exactly how it would happen in the future. If you could do that, or if I could do that, we'd be superheroes. We would be trending on Google News. We would be famous. Everybody would want to talk to us and try to get us to say something else about something that's coming in the future. Well... If you've got your phones handy, you may want to record this morning's message because I'm going to do some foretelling. Well, I'm actually not going to do foretelling. Um, I am actually going to go to the Bible because the Bible actually foretells. The Bible tells beforehand what is actually going to happen. God is going to tell us by his word what is happening today that he talked about way back when and what's happening in the future. And I'm going to do this by unpacking what the Word of God says about the past. We'll talk about the past to talk about the future. Foretelling. It happened long, long ago. God, through His prophets in the Bible, spoke of what would come in the future. He told us how He would save mankind, how He would rescue them, how He would give them hope, And he laid out his plan of salvation. Now, as we continue through Luke chapter 1 in this series called Foretold, uh, we are going to finish up with the remaining verses all the way through verse 80. And we're going to see how and why God sent his son here to save us. We're going to talk about why Jesus was sent here to save us. Now, for many of you here, when I say we're going to talk about why Jesus was sent to save us, you'll all be thinking, oh, I already know that. That's old news to me. I've heard that all my life. I know what you're going to say. And yet, I want to challenge you because I think I might say some things that the Bible speaks of, of what God saves us from and what God saves us to that either you haven't thought about in quite some time or maybe you've never thought about up until this, this point. And so this morning, to begin, we'll talk about the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation, first of all, was that God came to this earth to free us. God came to free you and to free me from whatever holds us captive, 
whatever seems to shackle us. We begin in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. If you don't have a Bible, I will have the Scriptures up here on the screen. Luke chapter 1, verse 67 says this, And his father, by the way, his is John the Baptist. At this time, John the Baptist is just a little baby. He's like maybe eight days old. John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He foretold, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us, that Jesus would come, God would come in the form of a man, Jesus himself, and he would visit us and accomplish redemption for his people. What does that redemption mean? He comes to bring redemption to us. I'm going to teach you a Greek word this morning. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the writing of Greek, but let me show you this word. It's pronounced lutrosis. Lutrosis is the Greek word for redemption. And uh, that's what the Greek looks like. And the definition of lutrosis or redemption is this, the experience of being liberated from an oppressive situation. The experience of being liberated, being set free from that which oppresses us. God came to set us free. This lutrosis, this redemption, is both positional and experiential. Let me explain that. First of all, if we go back to the text, notice it says, He has, in the past tense, accomplished redemption for us. If you and I are Christians, we are in a position of being set free from that which holds us captive, set free from the penalty of our sins, the the things that oppress us. And yet to experience liberation in in a tangible way in our lives, it is a process. It's not like Jesus comes along and we put our faith in him and then all those things that weighed us down, all those things in our life that kind of hold us captive and oppress us, uh, that Jesus takes a broom and he just kind of sweeps it into a dustpan and then he throws it away. That's not actually how we experience redemption in, in, in an ongoing way in our lives. The way, the way to picture it, I think, is not so much as a broom and a dustpan, but more like an ice auger. An ice auger. I mean, now we're in the time of the year when, uh, you know, we're waiting for the Lake Winnebago or the Bay of Green Bay to freeze over. And with this beautiful warm weather, it looks like we're going to be waiting a little bit longer. But trust me, I'm, if I'm a betting man, and I'm not, by the end of winter, Those will be totally frozen over. And uh, those of you who like to ice fish know that you can actually drive your cars on the ice. It's so thick, you can drive your cars on the ice. And you determine, I know, you know, you know your hot spots where the fish are. And you park the truck and you set up the shanty. And then you get out the old ice auger. And what are you doing with an ice auger? You're drilling a hole, boring a hole through that thick ice. And why are you doing it? Why do we do it? We do it to get down to the water. The reality is we're drilling through water to get to water. And the difference between this ice water, the ice, and the water below is that in the water below, there's life. There's life down there. We're hoping to catch some of that life that's down in that clear water. Oppression is like the ice. It's cold. It's hard. And if you're on it too long, it's pretty cruel. 
and redemption, the experience of being set free, begins to drill down into that which oppresses us. Drill down into those things that, are hard, that have hardened us in our lives. And so the oppressive relationships that maybe we're in, or the oppressive way in which we treat other people in our relationships, that God wants to begin to drill down into that for us. Or the oppression that we feel maybe in our job situation that just seems to weight us down. Or maybe the, the parents that we have, that they're so overbearing or they're just, they just seem to be, you know, put heavy loads on us. Or our emotional state. Some of us struggle with some of the emotional states like depression and those things that are kind of heavy on us. And God wants to begin to drill down into that. Drill down into the sin which so easily entangles us. Whatever form it takes, redemption gets to our hearts. Redemption gets our hearts to where there's living water. Our hearts may have become hardened, but redemption wants to drill down where we actually drink in the living water. What is that living water? It's the God-centered life. It's the life that is lived according to God's will. Now, there may still be ice all around us. There may still be that feeling of oppression all around us, but Jesus begins to bore down into our hearts so that he can spring up in us this water that leads to life, the life that he so desires for us to have. Matter of fact, Jesus said it of himself this way. He says in John chapter 8, in verse 36, these words. He says of himself, So if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. If the Son redeems you, which only the Son, Jesus, can redeem you, then you will be liberated indeed. So God came to free us. To free us from the things that oppress us. And he does it in a powerful way. He wants to free us in a powerful way. Back in Luke chapter 1, again, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And look at verse 69. And he has raised and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Raised up a horn of salvation. When you see that word horn in the Bible, typically it is a symbol of power. Matter of fact, in the first century when the New Testament was written, when these people were experiencing it, showing a horn on someone or on something was a symbol of power. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a pagan god, Juniper or uh, Jupiter, Jupiter Ammon. Uh, there's actually a, a relief of Jupiter, Jupiter Ammon uh, here on this picture, and you'll see how they made that god. They made him with horns because horns were a symbol of power. Matter of fact, Alexander the Great was uh, minted on the coins, the the coins of that day, the Greek coinage. And uh, notice this. This is one of the coins with Alexander the Great on it. And if you zoom in on that coin, you'll see that they gave Alexander the Great horns. They did it to show that he has power. And in the Bible, uh, the, the horn is used in the same exact way. As a matter of fact, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, well-respected encyclopedia of the Bible, states this. It says, horn is used figuratively to suggest aggressive power or bestowing power. 
the horn of salvation. I picture two rams that just come and bang each other, you know. They're aggressively powerful with one another. You ever experience aggressive power, the feeling of that? This past summer, my wife and two youngest daughters and I uh, headed over to Niagara Falls. And uh, I had not been there since I was a little kid. Jill had never been there, and our, of course our daughters had never been there. So we made our way over this summer to, to see Niagara Falls. And you want to talk about power. Those falls are quite powerful. Matter of fact, I was videotaping on my phone the power of the waterfalls. We were on this boat that took you right up into the center of the Horseshoe Falls. You ever take that boat ride, some of you? I actually want to show you a video of this. This is, this is Niagara Falls, and, and if we got volume on that, we'll play the volume as well. I mean, it is like pouring around you. You can't even really talk to one another, it's so loud. And we're just right there in the middle of the falls, and you kind of see down below the water just rushing from there. And, uh, and then this, this goes, the, of course, down the Niagara River. Now, what's interesting about the Niagara River is it actually flows south to north. It flows from Lake Erie north into Lake Ontario. But what I discovered on the Internet, uh, as I was just kind of researching a little bit about the Niagara River, is that it is the most powerful river in the world. It's a Category 6. It's the most dangerous river. Uh, it's illegal. You can't actually, like, go on it. But I actually videotaped it. We went and walked right by the river, and this is the, the Niagara River. Now, just look at that amazing power. Oh, I did a little slow-mo, a little slow-mo action. Incredible, incredible power of that water that you just don't want to go into. It's this sheer power. When it says that Jesus is the horn of salvation, it's by Jesus and Jesus alone where the sheer power of our salvation lies. In John chapter 4, he's at a well with a woman, and this woman comes, comes to him, and he says to her, he wants to offer her living water. And uh, she's a little confused by it, by it. And then he says, if you knew the one that was offering it to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A water of life that springs up unto eternal life. Water symbolizes life. And Jesus is the one who saves us, who gives us this living water. He is the only one who is mighty to save. When we think about the plan of salvation... We know that it's God himself who sets us free in a powerful way. In verse 69 again, he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The reason why he says that is because Jesus was from the line of King David. That Jesus was actually born in a manger, laid in a manger, and yet he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords in that moment. God foretold of his salvation from the oppression of, by the mighty power of his son Jesus, who is the king, King Jesus, in, line, in the line of, of David. And the Old Testament prophets foretold of God's plan to save. The Old Testament prophets told beforehand how God would save the world. Look at verse 70. And he spoke by the mouth, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. You see this plan of salvation? It's first of all from the haters, those who hate us. Let me read again verse 71. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
You know, I read that over and over again. I thought, who would hate us? I mean, who would hate you and who would hate me? I mean, we're good people. You know, we're nice people, aren't we? I, I think I am. Are you? Why would anybody want to hate us? Have you ever been shocked by someone hating you? And you think, what? what? Why? I was a, when I was a kid, we used to play pickle. You ever play pickle as a kid? Like my brother Nathan, he's a year younger than me, and, and I am, and our, our neighbor Paul, Paul Rumka. Paul would, uh, Paul and Nathan and I would play pickle, and I remember one time Nathan's on that, by the way, if you don't know what it is, it's like bases, like baseball bases, they're about that far apart, and you just take a, uh, your baseball mitts and a tennis ball, we used a, a tennis ball, and we would just throw it back and forth, and then a guy would try to make it from one base to the other and see how many times he could get, uh, make it from base to base without being tagged, without being uh, put out, and then you got to put on the mitt and be the other, you know, the person that's throwing it. So I'm throwing a baseball with, or a, a tennis ball with, with Nathan, and Paul's running the bases. And Paul is at the base with Nathan, and I toss the ball to Nathan, and Paul takes off to run to my base. And Nathan, you know, he, he quickly grabs the tennis ball, and he wings it at me as fast as he can, although he threw it way too high. Throws it over my head, and, of course, if, you know, with, when, you, when it goes past you, Paul can run as many bases as he possibly can get. So I run over. The, the ball had actually landed right by the house. And by the house... There's these pipes that come out of the basement. We used to uh, heat our house with oil. And so they had these pipes that would come out of the basement, and uh, they kind of curled like this, and then the, the attachment for the oil would be underneath like that. And uh, we had these huge tanks in our basement where, the, where a truck would come every so often and, and fill the tanks. Some of you maybe know what I'm talking about. And uh, because these are kind of ugly on the outside of the house, my dad actually built like a white picket fence around those pipes. And so the ball went right inside by the white picket fence. And so I hop up on the fence, and I jump down inside by the, by the pipes. Unbeknownst to me, wasps had made a nest in one of the pipe holes. And as I jumped down into this nice tight little area to pick up the tennis ball, like paratroopers dropping from an airplane, these black monsters started dropping out of the pipe, and I'm in shorts, and they immediately found my legs, and of course, they're just landing on my legs. I freak out. I jump up, do an amazing backflip, land on my feet. No, I'm just kidding. I just kind of fly out and bang my head on the ground, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm swatting at these wasps. I was stung five times by these little monsters. These little creatures, in that moment, saw me as an enemy. They were hating me, and so they stung me. Biblically, I think we have four primary enemies, the haters of us, who want to sting us whenever they can. The first one is kind of obvious. Satan and his demons and the forces of darkness. Um, biblically speaking, they want to sting us. They want, they do, they, Satan is a thief and a liar and a murderer. And he wants to hurt you and he wants to hurt me. At its foundation, our, our, our wrestle in life is a spiritual battle. Matter of fact, in, in Ephesians 6.16, it says that he throws fiery arrows or fiery darts at us. It's like stinging us, stinging us, stinging us. A second enemy, haters of us, are things in our culture 
that go against the holiness of God. So we see things that are happening in our culture, and we don't like them. And if we speak up against the culture because we want to stand up for what's right and what's true according to God, you can feel it. You can feel the sting coming back at us. You can feel that we are not wanted. You can feel that, that we're the enemy in the eyes of the world around us at times. A third enemy, a third hater of us, are people around us, specifically people who know us, even people who we might think love us, and they probably do. But this one is one that can kind of hurt us pretty deeply because those who know us, those who we're confident love us, can also sting us. They can also hurt us pretty deeply. And you know, when they're stinging us, when they're hurting us, they're not loving us. And the opposite of love is hate. And in that moment, they're the haters. One other enemy, one other hater that may not occur to you, but it is true biblically, and that's ourselves. We can despise ourselves. We can be self-haters. We can treat ourselves meanly. And in that moment when we do, we're our own enemy. Another way that we become our own enemy is our flesh. Uh, the Bible calls it being carnal, our carnality. When we don't walk by faith, when we aren't walking faithfully with the Lord, it's like there's this war going on inside of us where there's a part of us that we can find ourselves just not liking. Like, stop it. I, 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 this wrestle that I, I have, I, I, I struggle with it. The Apostle Paul highlighted how he struggled with it in his own experience to the point where it seemed like he just said, it's like I'm my own enemy. It's like I'm my own enemy. Go with me back to Romans chapter 7 when he concludes in this battle that he's having with himself. He concludes it this way in Romans 7 and verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Who will redeem me? Who will liberate me from the body of this death? And here's his answer in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Jesus who's the horn of salvation, and it's by His power that I will be rescued. It's by His power that I will be saved from the haters, even saved from myself. You know, God never saves us from something without saving us to something else. He'll save us from this in order for this to be our experience. And God, not only did He save us from the haters, but then He saves us to serve Him. We are saved to serve Him. We're saved to do His bidding, to do what He desires for our lives. Back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 72, it says this, to show that, that salvation comes from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy, this is why He saves us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. A covenant is a promise. The oath which He swore to Abraham, our father. By the way, this, this oath that He made to Abraham, 
is back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he says that all the nations, which includes you and me, will be blessed through Abraham. So he makes this oath to Abraham. And then verse, 20, uh, verse 74 is key here. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see, we're saved from our enemies in order that we might serve him, and I love this, without fear. You ever experience fear in your life? Remember the time when you experience intense fear? I've shared with you some of the stories over the years of some of the fear, fearful times of my life. Uh, one comes to my memory was um, when I was a bachelor, I was uh, living by myself in an upper flat on 71st and Greenfield in Milwaukee, if you know Greenfield, kind of in the shadows of County Stadium. Uh, County Stadium, for those of you who are a bit younger, is like a miniature version of uh, Miller Park. Matter of fact, it's like a minuscule version of Miller Park. But uh, anyway, I was living there, and I was working about 15 miles north north of Good Hope Road in a place called Kohler Manufacturing, spelled differently than the Kohler in Kohler. And I worked on a metal press. I was uh, pumping out uh, leaf springs, stainless steel leaf springs, and I'm getting into too much of the details of my job. Let me just say that I was working second shift, and uh, it was an odd shift. I was getting off at 3 a.m. in the morning. And so when I would drive home at night, I mean, it'd be like nobody's out there. You know, it'd be kind of quiet for me. And uh, as I was driving home one night, I'm driving south on Highway 100 to get to the freeway. Uh, and, and this, I'll never forget it, I'll, it's etched in my mind. It was a tan blazer, a two-tone tan blazer is behind me. And uh, again, it's a 15-mile drive to my house. And right after I got out of work, this, van, this blazer is behind me. And it followed me onto the freeway and then all the way by County Stadium, and it exited when I exited to go to my house, and it's following me now on the city streets, and I'm noticing, of course, in my rearview mirror at 3 a.m., two other guys in the, truck, in the blazer behind me, and I start to get nervous. Now, now I know what you're supposed to do is to go to someplace public, right? But think about it. It's after 3 a.m. in the morning. There's not a lot of public places you could go. Uh, back in the day, and, uh, and I didn't even really think about that. I just thought, i got to lose these guys. So I started flooring it down these city streets and down, through these neighborhoods to try and lose this blazer behind me, and they're on the chase. They are following after me, and I'm like, right, left, forward. You know, I'm going here and there and cutting through this and going through that and down this alley and out this way, and, and this blazer is like hot on my heels. Well, I'd like get ahead of them, and then they'd catch up to me, and then I'd like get ahead of them, and they'd catch up to me. And so I just thought, okay, well, I'm not going to lose them too badly, so what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to go to my flat, park the car on the street as fast as I can, run up to the house, get inside, and lock the door behind me and try to beat them. So that's what I did. I get ahead of them enough, and I get to my, to my upper flat, and I park the car in the street, and I run up the driveway, and I, I'm shaking with my key trying to unlock the door. I get inside. I lock the door behind me, and I go up the steps. I keep the lights off, and there's that upper, upper door that I'm unlocking, but I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm kind of safe now, and I get inside my apartment. I don't, I don't even turn on any lights, and I go to the front of the house, and I look out the window, and the tan blazer is sitting there right behind my car, 
And I could tell the guys were looking around. They were like, I think they were just thinking I'm hiding in some bush or something. And they're trying to find where I went. So I'm on the phone. I get, I get, I get the cordless phone, landline. Remember what a landline was? Get a cordless phone, and I'm dialing 911. And I'm on the phone, and my heart is literally thumping through my head. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been, I've been followed. I've been chased home by, the, by this car, and, and, and they're out in front of my house, and I don't know what to do. And they asked me for my address. I gave them the address. I hung up the phone. No sooner did I hang up the phone, and three squad cars are surrounding the blazer out front. Just boom on this blazer. And I'm looking out the window, you know, just like above like this. No lights on. And I see those police officers ask those two guys to get out of their vehicle. And they're talking to them. And I don't know what they're talking about. I just see them talking. And then before you know it, the guys get in their blazer. And they take off. And the squad cars are there for a little bit. And then they take off. And I'm like, that's it? You guys leave. You know what they're doing. They're coming back. So my heart is still thumping. And I can't fall asleep, of course. So I'm staring out the window all night long, waiting for the blazer to come back, only to see that police officers kept about every five minutes would drive by my home. I'm sure just making sure those guys didn't come back. Fear. Fear. Whoa, crazy fear. What causes us to fear in our lives? What causes us to fear in our walk of faith, in our in our serving the Lord? What chases our hearts? What fiery darts do we feel are shot at us that we just know we can't avoid? We can't seem to duck out of their way. Let me give you some of the fears that I think some of us deal with. I think we have a fear that, well, you know, I, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll serve the Lord, but I fear I'm going to let him down. I fear I'm going to let the Lord down. I mean, can you really serve the Lord like it says in all holiness and righteousness? I don't think I can live up to that. Let me just say this. Jesus loves you, and he loves me unconditionally. Just like we let our parents down, and they still love us, and they're still for us, and they're still helping us. They still want us to succeed. Likewise with Jesus. We are going to let him down, but he says then. It's okay, draw near to me again, and, and, and let's take it from here, and let's, let's get back up on our feet and move forward. I think some of us fear losing our salvation. Like, you know, if I don't measure up to that level that somehow is out there as far as being holy and righteous and all that and serving Him, that I'm, maybe I'm not even saved. You might have that feeling. The reality is, is our salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's not sealed by our behavior. If we put our faith, our trust, our reliance upon Jesus, that He died for your sins and my sins, we're saved. Saved to the uttermost, the Bible says. You can't become unsaved. Once you are an adopted child of God, you can't become unadopted. It's impossible. We might fear rejection from other people. You know, we're, we want to serve the Lord. We want to walk by faith. But, uh, you know, people might reject us. They might not like us. Uh, they, might, they might treat us differently. Let me just say yes. That will happen. Matter of fact, all who desire to live godly in this day and age will be persecuted, the Bible says. That we will experience that in our lives. The reality is only Jesus, only Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Only Jesus makes that claim. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is the horn of our salvation. He's the one in which we give our lives to. On Him, there is no shaky ground. So Zacharias, he tells or he foretells of how the prophets of old told about God's plan of salvation. Then he makes a shift, and he starts to focus on his own son, his little baby boy. And John, he talks about how John the Baptist would foretell of God's plan to save us. He then turns to his boy. I picture him holding his little baby boy, and he just starts talking to him like a dad would. And he says this in verse 76. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. You, child, you will fulfill what the Old Testament prophets said. Matter of fact, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, this is the prophecy of John the Baptist. The Lord says this. He says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. The way before me has been messed up. Sin entered the world. Corruption entered the world. The haters, the enemies, they messed up the way of redemption. They messed up the way to the Lord. You might remember back on November 30th, November 30th, Anchorage, Alaska experienced a magnitude 7 earthquake. Did you hear about this? Yeah, many of you did. I actually have a friend that lives in Anchorage, Alaska. His name is Mark Fontecchio. He's a pastor up there in Alaska, good, good friend of mine. And uh, he started sending pictures. I mean, he was like at ground zero where, where the earthquake happened. And he sent me a few pictures of a couple of different roads. Here's one of the pictures that he sent to me. Look at that. 9 a.m., by the way, it's still dark at 9 a.m. in Alaska. And uh, I happen to be going there in February, so I'm, I, I'm, you know, February, Alaska, I don't know. Anyway, I get off. But here's, here's uh, it's just, when I saw that, I thought, that's a, that's a good picture, uh, a good imagery of, of how the world and the haters and the enemies of God and sin itself has destroyed the path of salvation. But now he sends me another picture five days later. Five days after this picture, look at this next picture. Can you believe it? The Department of Transportation in Alaska fixes that road from that bad of a road to this perfect road in five days. I kind of wonder, why don't they do that around here? You know, that path, the path to, to redemption, the path to salvation has been repaired, completely repaired. When Jesus came as a baby, he came for one thing, to grow up, fulfill all of the law, and then once all of the law was fulfilled in his life, he would be the perfect sacrifice for your sins and mine. See, the path that we're on is that broken up path. There's no way that we can get ourselves to God. No matter how good we are, no matter how much we try, we can't get ourselves to God. But God came to us that first Christmas morning. And he came to live a perfect life and then to die for you and for me so that our sin would be forgiven. You know what the plan of salvation is? The plan of salvation is that we would be saved from our sins. 
the very thing that separates us from God. That's what Zechariah said. Look at verse 77. He's speaking to John, and he says, John, you're to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. By the way, that's kind of flowery language, uh, poetic language, really. Basically saying that as sure as the sun will rise in the east, so Jesus would come. And he, come, he came to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Jesus came to save us from our darkness. To save us from being separated from God. By God's tender mercy, He forgives us because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. Again, not only does God save us from something, He always saves us to something as well. He saved us from our sins, and He saved us to know peace. To know the peace that can only be found in Jesus Look at the end of verse 79. It finishes this way. It says, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's what redemption does, by the way. That's what the experience of redemption does. Being removed from that which oppresses us and guides our feet into the way of peace. Jesus never offers that he will remove our troubles in our life. He never says, I'll remove your troubles. But he does offer that he'll be there with us no matter what. He'll see us through whatever we're facing. Matter of fact, we can know his peace in the midst of the storm. We can sense his calm when it feels like the waves are crashing over us. John the Baptist would be bold for the Lord. He was a prophet that would prophesy and prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 80. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance to Israel. When he'd come out as the prophet, Jesus, or, or John, I'm sorry, became the man who God wanted him to become. He became the prophet who God had, had told him he would become. He was free to live as God wanted him to live. And he knew the horn of salvation. He knew who Jesus was. And he would proclaim to the world around him. When he, became, when he went public with his, with his prophetic utterances, he called on people to, to, to turn from their sin and to turn to the Lord. And he says, make ready the way of the Lord. He was the voice crying in the wilderness. How about us? How are our hearts right now today? Getting close to this Christmas time. Are we ready to receive Jesus? He calls us to turn to Him for redemption. He's here to liberate us from that which oppresses us. No matter what form that oppression takes, and by the way, this oppressive nature that we are dealing with, it actually shows up more than we maybe realize or want to admit. And it's yet, it's Jesus and Jesus alone, who is the plan of salvation. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who saves us. We're called to put our faith, our trust, our confidence in Him. We think of Christmas coming. God has foretold 
of the significance of Jesus coming. It's, he stated in advance, even before Jesus was born, that he would be the horn of our salvation. He would be the power for how we would be saved. He is the Redeemer. He is our Rescuer. God came to set us free, to liberate us from that which oppresses us, to bring forgiveness of our sins. But He didn't just save us from that. He saved us to serve Him and to know His everlasting peace. That would be my hope for you and for me during this Christmas time. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who saves us. You are the one who sets us free from that which oppresses us. Lord, I pray for people here. Don't know where they're at with you, every one of them, but you do. You know where they're at. And Lord, I pray by your Spirit you draw them to yourself, that they would put their trust, their confidence, their faith in you alone not in themselves, not in anything that they contribute to salvation, but you alone have come to save them. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay our penalty for our sins. Thank you for rising from the grave that we can actually know you and know the power of your salvation, that we can have a personal relationship with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. I pray around this holiday time that we would be able to just tap into that relationship and experience your power in our lives that we'd be able to know what it means to be free. Free to be the people that you've made us to be. Free to walk by faith and not by sight. Free to serve you. Or give us your everlasting peace. We pray this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.